I think as a user, I certainly appreciate when an app takes the time to explain things in a little bit more nuanced ways or, you know, has built in suggestions around how much screen time I'm spending each week and giving me more information to be better informed around my own digital literacy and the use of these platforms. So there is a role for government and communities in this, but I also always very cautious to say that we're benefited by these technologies, but it's the companies themselves who make insane profits off this work. And that should come with a responsibility to the public and the need to inform people better about the good sides and the bad sides of their products. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Adam, and you're listening to The Foil Podcast. Where we talk about the opportunities and the risks of the data age. What it means for you and what it might mean for us all. Hi, Chris Cooper. Welcome to The Foil. Thank you very much for your time today. We'd love to know about your background and your work that you're doing right now, helping to reset the internet for democracy at Reset. Can you share your history, your background and how you came to do this work? Sure thing. And thank you so much for, for having me. So my career has been working on various, in various digital spaces from starting out as a digital media creative to working on strategic advocacy initiatives that shift behavior, awareness and policy on a really wide range of issues, but always with the sort of digital component to that work, thinking about how we engage audiences and how we shift power through digital technology. I'm also trained as a cultural anthropologist. So I've always had this sort of strong foundation and understanding how value systems and culture shape communities and power structures. And so that work has kind of come together for me in launching Reset Australia, which is a policy think tank that works on developing better policy solutions to regulating big tech. This means looking at how to break down the status quo approach to tech regulation that we've seen from successive Australian governments and to look to more upstream regulatory solutions. So this is about the need to get away from regulation that thinks about the issues in tech through the lens of bad content and bad actors, and instead to really expand that view to encompass more of the systems and processes of big tech firms, as well as the business model that has ultimately produced unintended consequences and, and harms for, for Australians. And so our focus is on enabling better technology that works to improve user well-being um, and strengthen democracy without inhibiting the great products and innovation that we love in our tech. It's fascinating time to be doing this work because of the international awareness, I think, in the policy frameworks that are being developed all over the world to sort of handle this big tech business model. But to help us understand a little bit about the current context in Australia, could you share with us what the current state is in regulation? And you mentioned malactors and security, I think. What does it really look like right now? And where are you hoping we'll get to? I think the, the problem with our current regulatory approach, is that there's a few dimensions to that. The first one is, as I mentioned, this real focus on the problems with or the harms that are caused by big tech, uh, a product of yeah, bad actors, whether they be terrorists, bullies, trolls, predators, whatever it might be, uh, and a focus on the content that's connected to those actors. And what that means is that we're sort of set up to try and play this giant game of whack-a-mole with bad content and bad actors on the scale of the internet. And that's just an impossible task. And it's not to say that you, you, you don't take an approach to 
to bad actors and bad content. It's just that we really need to expand that view to look at the business models and the systems of our digital platforms, the way that they're designed, um, and to focus regulation around ensuring that they're designed and working in the best interests of, of, of Australian um, users and sort of democracy. And I think an, another kind of key uh, dimension here is we have this co-regulatory model here, which is a sort of yeah new evolution of you know self-regulation where we've got companies themselves often drafting the regulation that is meant to keep them accountable. And we've sort of seen that just constantly fail on multiple fronts. And all of that is actually compounded by having regulators that just aren't resourced with the expertise or the funding to be able to tackle these problems. And they're also fragmented in ways that don't make sense for the digital world. So between you know, the Safety Commissioner, um, ACMA, the ACCC, they're all looking at different components of these problems, but there's not actually a cohesive response to enforcement or regulation if we even had the right kind of regulation. Such a, such a really tricky thing, I think, to approach and tackle. How do you detect bad content and how do you detect a bad actor? Do you know bad content because it's coming from a bad actor? And can you classify a bad actor because they produce bad content? Or is there some sort of extrinsic framework that is applicable to either or both? There's a lot of bad actors and there's a lot of bad content and it all they all act in different ways. And so... You know, there's certainly a world of content that I'd say the e-safety commissioner sort of is largely tasked with tackling, and that's very straightforward. It's things like certain types of harassment, hate speech, bullying, child abuse material, all the stuff that we all can kind of agree is is not good. But then there's this sort of gray area where we get into more of the space of mis and disinformation, which is a really key focus for us, and understanding is this sort of uh, is this piece of misinformation content actually harmful by itself. And then really, which you know, we want to see the conversation shift to understanding that a single piece of misinformation or disinformation might not be harmful, but when people consume that content on scale through the algorithmic curation of their news feeds that feed them that kind of content over and over again, and no other kind of alternative viewpoints or you know, no consideration from the algorithm around what's actually factual, then that content becomes harmful in the in that in that context, and so we just need to have a more nuanced conversation and more definitions around how we understand that, and also making sure we're not stepping into a space where we're curtailing free speech. Um, you know, it, it's it is tricky and it's really complicated. Uh, I'd just say that our approach to date, we just haven't equipped ourselves, and I, I mean ourselves being Australian society and government and regulators, with the ability to even really assess these problems and analyze them and, and understand them deeply enough to be able to build the regulatory reforms that would be able to define these better and to really encapsulate the broader set of harms. Is your work involved with the proposition of definitions? Like, are you helping to guide the definition of things like misinformation, you know, a framework for what is and is not harmful those kinds of things or is your work more at the kind of meta level of you know just how do we how do we sense make about these concepts in the abstract we do both so there's a really a great number of academics and researchers in australia who are doing a lot of this work already and we often engage with them and you know partake in different sort of consultations and and collaborative 
efforts to create those kind of definitions um, and start to frame up the conversation because we think it's really important. And so we've probably done the most work in that space on, yeah, missing disinformation. So building on the work of organizations like First Draft and others who have really brought a lot of structure to how we have the conversation around these, around these terms and around these issues. And that baseline of having clear definitions that are shared and that everyone's speaking the same language is, is crucial. And I'd say that when we started Reset Australia two years ago, there was, you know, the, the conversations we were having with policymakers was really fragmented because there was just not that shared understanding. Um, and, and, and that sort of, uh, lack of cohesive understanding went both ways in terms of, you know, misinformation, disinformation and types of content, but also in understanding the causes uh, of, of the problems themselves from, you know, users through to platforms, through to business models. So can you share with us your working definition for misinformation? The key difference between misinformation and disinformation really is about intent. The sort of simplified example is the classic misinformation is that auntie who shares COVID misinformation, not knowing that it's false, but actually sharing it because, you know, if she loves you and she's concerned about you and she's found some new information, that is terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. And then the disinformation side of that is, you know, where there's intent to mislead with, with false information. And I think that is probably the most sort of important definition. The other, the other sort of part of that is malinformation, which is where information is taken out of context or edited in different ways to distort its original meaning. And that can sort of sit within disinformation, but can also, you know, it is also it's a term in its own right as well. Those definitions are really helpful to understand and anchor on these concepts, Chris, because it is confusing for many people, particularly policymakers, as you said, you know, quite fragmented apps two years ago, and maybe that's moved forward as a result of the last couple of years and things that have been occurring, not just in Australia, but around the world when it comes to number of issues related to big tech. So can you anchor this for me in experiments you've been running uh, to, to help me understand what are the harms and what are the most evident harms and what you're working on and how you're working with policymakers to sort of uh, understand what needs to happen? A good case study to sort of speak to this through is, again, it's sort of looking at one piece of puzzle, but it's a really important piece, which is the use of children's data and the way that that data is collected, uh, used and monetized. And so we've been working uh, with um, parliamentarians here to build on the work of the age-appropriate design code from the UK, which is essentially a code that does a few things, but I guess at a very top level, it provides, it says that um, it provides the maximum level of privacy protections for under 18 year olds. Um, it, it said, and it also importantly puts the responsibility to protect children's data and the use of that data back onto platforms um, rather than having, uh, you know, society having to usually pick up the pieces of, you know, bad, of really bad, you know, usually unintended consequences for young people and having to a, foot the bill for, for fixing those problems, um, but also um, not really having the ability or the, um, the access to, 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 fix, to fix those problems. And, and the way that the code does that is it introduces a very um, simple 
principle called the best interest principle, which is a you know something that's used in other parts of of common law. And what it says is that if you are a digital platform that is using children's data or engaging or have a product that that young people use, then uh, you need to prove that it is designed and operating uh, with the best interests of children in mind. And it, and it seems it sounds quite simple, but it's it's um, it's quite like groundbreaking in the way that it's changed things. And so when the code was introduced in the UK, uh, between it being legislated and coming into force, we saw changes that platforms were making because it forced them to think about that question. And so we saw things like uh, TikTok um, changing the settings so that when an under 18 year old starts up a new account, it defaults to private. They still have the option to switch it to public. Um, and that's really kind of a, you know, a, a no nonsense sort of common, common sense approach to how they should be designed. Um, Instagram stopped recommending over 18, like over 18 year olds to be friends or follow under 18 year olds. And that's also something that I think uh, is, should have always been there, right? I mean, that meant that previously, you know, 40 year old men could be suggested to go follow 13 year old girls. And we, and that seems crazy that that was the case, but that's because the platforms had always operated uh, at such, you know, breakneck speed in terms of developing these products that there often wasn't that time to stop and think about the complexities of the potential issues that came from it. So the code uh, seeks to address that. And we've been working with parliamentarians here and um, the online privacy bill, at least the, the, the draft version, has that principle involved, uh, sorry, included in there, um, which should, you know, provide that same level of protection that, that um, children and young people in the UK have uh, to Australian um, Australian young people. One of my favorite anecdotes ever is is one that was shared by Dr. Ian Offerman, who's the chief data scientist of New South Wales on a previous episode of The Foil, where he relates some work that he was overseeing at the Data Analytics Center of New South Wales, engaging with services in an agencies delivering services in this state that were involved with interventions with families and children where those children were deemed to be at risk and actions were taken. I'm sort of leaving this in the very abstract because I'll get some of the details wrong and I really don't want to do that. But the point was that essentially through uh, investigation of the data, through analysis of the data post facto, it was found that in many cases, the actions that were taken by those agencies in relation to those families actually were resulting in bad outcomes that were not foreseen or not anticipated beforehand. And so I guess that would be just kind of like the most obvious example to me in recent memory of a case where even positive intent, many of these you know, folks obviously had the best intention at heart with, with respect to these families and children, but those actions that they were taking were clearly not in the best interests of those families all the time, despite that intent. So I'd, I'm really keen to know from your point of view, and perhaps as it's codified in, in your work, how can we reliably decide what is in somebody's best interests, whether an adult or a child or anybody, you know, let alone prove that to other people? It's an interesting challenge with data because the age of design code was the first time that that principle was applied to data. And so I think that work is ongoing. We're, we're doing some research into really defining what that looks like and you know, really thinking about the developers who are creating these um, these products and what's the framework that they're using and the criteria they're using to understand what is in the best interests of, of young people. And, and I think it's a really important point that like, the, you know, the power of 
data is immense and your good intentions can, you know, sometimes not matter, right? You can stop and think about this and you can still have unintended consequences. And so we need to have that sort of better sort of shared learning to understand, to learn from these experiences. But I also think that there's plenty of cases where there weren't necessarily good in, good intentions. It was just sort of reckless product development. And, you know, our work is really focused on social media and the way that, you know, big tech companies uh, use different forms of surveillance to collect um, young people's data and then use them in really broad, use that data in really broad ways, but also for an advertising model, which I think is just, um, you know, not good and <laughs> not well intentioned to start off with, um, to be, to be honest, but I, you know, so one of the experiments that we ran was looking at, you know, how, like, how can you use young people's data in the Facebook ad platform to target ads to young people that are age inappropriate and based off, you know, interests as those data profiles indicate that are, that are, that are just, you know, we can all agree are, are deeply inappropriate. And so that exercise, we, um, were able to target, you know, 13 year old girls who were interested, um, as per the sort of Facebook ad platform in things like online dating, um, gambling, smoking, alcohol, um, extreme weight loss, uh, you know, a number of, of, of categorizations that are clearly problematic and you'd hope that the problem there is from no one at Facebook having stopped and thought about it, because if they had stopped and thought about it, they felt like that was appropriate. That's an even bigger problem. Um, but we weren't only able to target young people based off those interests. We were also able to create ads that were inappropriate in their content. So, you know, targeting 13 year old girls interested in extreme weight loss with images of girl of women in bikinis, um, asking, saying, you know, are you, are you, are you summer ready or, you know, uh, ads for that included alcohol or gambling or vaping. Um, and all of these ads were, were approved, um, by the, by the ad platform. We didn't actually, um, send or look, you know, um, or push any of those ads to young people. Um, we didn't want to contribute to or contribute to the problem, but, um, it just demonstrated how much there is a lack of thought and consideration around intended harms and a complete lack of oversight over, you know, who's, who's keeping Facebook accountable. I mean, they're making money, um, off the system and they've since made changes that limit the interest that advertisers can choose to target young people, but haven't actually removed the ability to still, um, segment audiences of young people based off those interests. They've just sort of obscured the way that you can do it. Um, and again, there's, there's no oversight. There's no one who's assessing those ads. Um, there's, a, there's an AI system that checks them for particular, you know, awful content, but we know that those systems aren't, uh, aren't as effective as they should be. And they are again, designed by Facebook, um, with, you know, with a track record of prioritizing profit over, over harms. Um, and, you know, Francis Haugen, the whistleblower, demonstrated how clear Facebook w have been on making that decision um, repeatedly when the new harms were present. Um, and there's no one else outside Facebook who's, who's looking at that. And that's, that's clearly a problem. And it undermines the ability of anybody else who's wanting to use data in appropriate, responsible ways for, for good, um, because it makes the whole use of young people's data quite a murky space. 
And it is a murky space. And I suppose it's evident that self-regulation hasn't really worked. They're the experiments. You're, you're talking through examples of, well, we allowed technology companies to self-regulate and, and in fact, that's not been working. And it may not work because indeed business models are based on persuasive tech. And, you know, these companies have grown into big tech companies over the last 20 years. And it was 20 years ago that Stanford University opened its lab on persuasive tech, which is really all about how do we use technology to drive engagement and behavior change in these platforms. And, you know, I think it's pretty well known that so many of the early product developers and, and builders of early tech actually attended that course at Stanford and, and have spoken about that. I don't even think at that point in time, people really knew what those unintended consequences would be. And unfortunately, or fortunately for big tech, whichever way you look at it, it's simply now we're in a space where you know, their business models are built on the use of data to persuade behaviours that are going to drive more value to that business. So there's certainly an interesting role for policy change and for regulation in this arena, and you've highlighted the work in the UK. Where is Australia, in your view, where are Australia's policymakers sitting on this? I think we've seen a really dramatic increase in the political will and leadership to regulate big tech. And that's certainly welcomed, but we are still behind the eight ball compared to say the UK and Europe particularly, but also you know Canada and the US are having uh, very interesting conversations around this as well. But we, we're sort of behind the eight ball in my view, because we're still not thinking really about data. I mean, we don't have, we're not having a serious conversation yet about an Australian equivalent to GDPR. And, uh, and we're still really talking about, you know, regulation that actually either undermines anonymity and privacy, like the recent Trump bill, which I think is a bad piece of policy, or we're still talking about content and not even getting to the, the systems, the algorithms, let alone the, the user data that that's all built off. Um, and so the Privacy Act review is. Um, is happening now, and this is well and truly overdue. Um, I think someone told me the other day that the Privacy Act is older than the CEO of Snapchat. And I think that sort of um, just really highlights uh, the need for that to be updated. And it, you know, it's it's early days, and it, it obviously won't be finished before the election. It'll be you know the review will go on this year, um, and how that shapes up and how. You know, uh, we de we decide to define data and what the appropriate uses of that data will matter a lot. And you know, uh, the act, the, the privacy act review only come, you know, it only comes up very rarely. And so, this is a you know, key opportunity now for us to see that political will to regulate big tech to really focus on fundamentals like like data privacy. Um, so, I, I'm I'm really hopeful. Um, you know, we've done a lot of work with. Uh, parliamentarians sort of across the across the the board, and yeah, the conversations from two years ago to now have significantly improved in terms of understanding the the sort of root causes of these issues um, and the need to think more effectively and strategically about how to regulate and protect user data without stifling you know innovation and the sort of burgeoning Australian tech sector, which we all want to see thrive as well. 
Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful. I think we're sort of at the beginning of Australia catching up and stepping into the position that we've always held. And I think that we hold quite proudly as you know a small jurisdiction on global st- on global standards, but one that has consistently shown our ability to take on big industry, big powerful industry. And while lots of people draw correlation to taking on big tobacco through initiatives like our plain packaging laws, which I think you know, were great and have been replicated around the world. I do think this fight is bigger and harder because as we saw through, say, the news media bargaining code situation, and <laughs> there's, there's better words to call that probably, but um, we saw just how powerful these companies are in not only influencing government and policymakers to win concessions on regulation, but also in influencing public narratives and shifting um, the way that people were thinking about that issue. Um, you know, and that comes from an incredible amount of power that allows them to, you know, force pop-ups into every Australian who was using Google or YouTube or had a or had a, an Android phone. That's an incredible amount of <laughs> amount of power that you know politicians need uh, to be able to counter um, with the kind of the political will and, and the political cover to be able to, you know, be bold on pushing for a new regulatory framework and, you know, and new legislation, which, which addresses the, these issues. When I first picked up the Privacy Act, I was actually, and I'd read it through, it was like early on after Christy and I started our data business and it occurred to me that I needed to become conversant, at least in all of the legislature around that topic so that we could speak meaningfully with our customers and clients about it. What it struck me was actually how forward thinking our Privacy Act was for when it was written in many ways. And I think it was well recognized around the world that Australia had one of the most forward thinking privacy pieces of legislation of anywhere in the world before GDPR, at least. I remember, you know, reading the definition of personal information in the Privacy Act and, you know, the wording is essentially personal information is any information about a person or from which a person could be reasonably identified. And there seemed to be such broad scope in that very succinct definition to cover so much of what we still today, you know, are concerned about as far as personal information and uh, as regards data privacy would, would go. And the other thing about the Privacy Act is that it's currently as well, usually usually when we encounter it in our conversations, it's, gee, you know, we'd love to be able to share data perhaps between government agencies or uh, from a government agencies into community where that information could, you know, really have a positive impact. But the Privacy Act, you know, gets in the way we'd love to, but for the Privacy Act. And so there are ways in which the current legislative and regulatory environment, you know, is already burdensome and stifling in some respects. And so I wonder from your point of view, Chris, are there aspects of our current environment in that regard that we could be thinking about taking a more relaxed attitude towards or uh, even things that we might be thinking about and talking about a lot and really sort of concerned about that we don't need to be necessarily so concerned about where there might be other priorities? I think it's hard to say that there's areas where there's too much attention or too much regulatory burden in this space because so much of it is just still largely unregulated. I do think that there's a real need, and this is probably the one point that we agree (laughs) with the major social media platforms on, which is that a lot of that regulatory burden comes from sort of mismatch between data, data data regulation and privacy regulation in other jurisdictions. And so it's, it's really difficult for companies to work out what kind of approach they need to take. Um, if they're building a product, they tend to be global. And how do you how do you um, draw that line um, 
between you know EU's sort of more progressive data protection laws um, and what's here and then what's in other countries like that the need for a kind of cohesive approach to that I think is is really needed and I think that'll really ease a lot of the regulatory burden um, the other thing that we've seen through our work on the the children's data code is that we had a lot of organizations um, speak to us about how they were aware of the problems um, and the risks for the most part, but really lacked the kind of guidance that a kind of a, a data code or um, a you know data protection regulation would actually provide them and how to um, engage. And so it's like that that space of not having strict rules works, you know, causes problems both ways. It, it enables those companies who don't think about the harm so well to sort of you know, cause harms freely and, and legally. And then it also means that those who want to do the right thing are kind of a, a little bit lost to what's best practice here. The other thing I'd add that I think is really important here is it's that use of, you know, like the definition of, of personal data is, is really important to make sure that that's up to date and, um, and nuanced enough to not, um, you know, to, to not confuse or make it difficult to think about, um, you know, child protection services who have data on children and need to share that between agencies in ways that are safe and secure and appropriate um, with, you know, Facebook, who has, also has children's data. And whether there's a certain set of rules that need to apply, there's certainly principles that should apply across the board, but it's, it's that sort of level of complexity that I think really lacks. And it's also in terms of like use, right? So it's like thinking about data minimization and purpose limitation to say that just because you have data or just because you had users consent to data and we've done a bit of work on what consent actually means in terms of data, data protection as well um, doesn't mean that you can just go and shouldn't mean you can just go and collect as much as you want and everything you want and then use it for any number of purposes across the the verticals of your of your company so yeah this is a lot of work to be done there there's a huge amount of work to be able to identify and unpack for already a community and citizens who have a lot of mistrust in governments and technology companies to use their data responsibly. There's a trust deficit, I think, that might have somewhat improved in the Australian landscape since people becoming more familiar with using data for through the pandemic and through crises. But there's still a very big deficit, Chris. I, I noticed a new published study from t 2019 said one in four Australians mistrust the use of data, mistrust governments to use their data well. And I think it's even more dire when it comes to technology companies. So how do you see this balancing out? Because as you rightly pointed out, and we agree, there's huge public benefit in that access to data and equitable access to data for decision-making, particularly in local communities now work that we see that are driving outcomes that they want and that they need to see and, and, and making data visible to them in a safe way actually helps them improve their work, which ultimately improves lives and, and outcomes for all of society. How do you balance the complexity? How do you think that's going to play out? Because the fear is quite large around the use of data and mistrust and the trust deficit, I suppose, with the public benefit usage. The trust deficit needs to be addressed. It's very true that large numbers of people don't trust government with their with their data. And that's 
um, you know, sometimes because it can be used in the various ways. Um, but I think it usually it comes back to a kind of security um, perspective of, you know, uh, at least the, the perspective, and I, I guess I wouldn't necessarily argue with this, but that like government digital infrastructure is tends to be less secure than private companies. However, we've seen data breaches of, you know, every major big tech company at some level. We've seen security breaches of government agencies as well. Um, but I think it's, yeah, so, so, you know, that really needs to be addressed. Um, and I think the, the, the safeguards around regulating the use of data by different agencies and law enforcement is also really important to people. Um, and that's difficult because I think that, you know, trust is obviously hard to build and easy to burn. And I, I think that, you know, when I sort of zoom out and come back to the kind of the private sector, thinking about Apple's decision to allow, you know, provide iOS users with the ability to ask apps not to track. And I think that's a really important sort of lesson there where, uh, you know, I think I, I, I'm not sure of the, like the most recent numbers, but I think last time I saw it, it was about 11% of users opted into allowing Facebook to track them. Um, you know, 90% of people or something to that effect said, um, ask Facebook not to track. And what that says to me is that the relationship that we have with private companies or like tech companies and including with government has been a kind of uh, status quo approach, something that we've sort of slept walked into. And as soon as you give uh, Australians or, you know, the public the option to have a little bit more control over their data, it demonstrates that we, we are clearly not comfortable with the existing relationship. Um, and so I think what all of these, like the trust deficit and these sort of lessons is going to lean to is not like it is definitely more of a conversation around individual rights to, to privacy and their data, um, but also a real important need around consent and, um, acknowledging the obvious truth that we all know that the privacy agreements and the data agreement policies that we click accept on without ever reading um, is not really informed consent. Um, and those agreements don't have to be, you know, don't have to require a master's level degree to understand them or three days to read them. They can be done in ways that give people uh, you meet people where they are in terms of understanding what they're accepting, what they're consenting to. And more control around uh, the ongoing relationship there, which is to say, you know, things like uh, better rights to data portability, the right to be uh, um, deleted, all the all of those sort of simple things that come from actually just informing people better, so that they can, you know, make more informed decisions around. Uh, this is what I feel comfortable my data being used for. This is who I feel comfortable uh, giving my data to and it being shared with. And I think that that will be a kind of fundamental shift that's going to happen in, in the coming years, uh, which will which will send a shockwave through um, the tech sector, um, but not one that I think is is you know it's de- like the the Apple decision has been devastating to Facebook, um, but I, th- I don't think it'll I don't think it's set to uh, destroy companies or destroy business models. I think it's just a realignment of the power dynamic between users and and the, the business models of companies um, that'll, that'll produce better better products that are more secure um, and that have better outcomes for users. So Chris, what are you asking politicians and governments to get behind? What are you hoping is going to be the policy landscape in the next two years and then five years? 
we think about the regulatory sort of framework that's needed through kind of five policy principles. Um, and they are one focus, like to focus regulation on platform accountability, transparency to shift that responsibility back on to particularly the, the big companies to, to be accountable to, to the impacts of their products. Regulation focusing on eliminating risks from systems and processes. So again, removing it from that sort of downstream content bad user and to move more upstream in its focus um, to, to, to um, have more oversight uh, over, over the design of systems themselves. And then there's expanding sort of regulations to address community and societal risks. So not just individual risks. And this sort of comes back, I think this is best explained through the misinformation, disinformation piece where one person who's misinformed is a problem on a small scale. But when you have an entire society who is fragmented in terms of the digital information ecosystem and essentially consuming two different versions of, of the truth or two different versions of, a, of an issue is a real problem for democracy. So we need to sort of think about it, not just about individuals, but about communities and societal risks. And then the other two principles are really about enforcement. It means a regulatory framework that's comprehensive, that looks at the entirety of, this, uh, of these problems. Um, you know, through changing the way that our regulators are set up, either that's we're not necessarily calling for a new, uh, a new regulator, but, um, you know, the UK is looking at better cohesion between different regulators, um, as a means to address that. And the last one is about those regulators just being, uh, regulation being strong and enforced. And so that is equipping regulators with the resources, both you know, human like expertise, as well as the financial resources to attract the best people um, and to actually enforce um, enforce that regulation with appropriate penalties that um, are proportionate to the scale uh, of companies and the, the, the scale of the, the harms that are caused. And so this means for in Australian context, like thinking through those five principles, that there's quite a lot of change that's needed. Um, you know, I think what we've seen is a lot of focus on the e-safety um, approach as one where a lot of energy and attention is going, um, which I think is set for an evolution to acknowledge that there's plenty of good work that's done there, but the safety approach through through that lens is all downstream and we can't keep just expanding, you know, the powers of a regulator downstream and expect changes um, or to, or to, you know, be getting a, addressing harms before it happens rather than after the fact. Um, and then, you know, we've also got a mix of regulators who, uh, have really large or like, uh, deep remits, but just do, do not have the resources to, to tackle it, um, to tackle the problems. And so, um, the way that the regulatory framework in Australia is set up, the way that that system is set up it really needs to be changed. And I think that needs to be a focus. Um, but that requires really strong political leadership, I think, to push through something that is ultimately detached from the everyday lives of, of people. You know, the public tend to care about those conversations so much. They care about the harms that are caused to their children and their families. And so, uh, yeah, and that's what we've seen in, in Europe, right? We've seen European politicians who are taking this on, showing that leadership to, to, to design appropriate regulation in ways that is not necessarily a vote winner kind of issue. 
some of some of these elements certainly are um, because they impact people. But I think yeah, that's that's where I think the next few years will go. We'll see an increasing number of MPs who are stepping up to the plate on this, and hopefully designing much better regulation and undoing some of the approach that's been taken so far, which is ineffective or or not as not as holistic as it should be. When we spoke last, you were talking about how it's important that these powers reside in an independent regulatory authority rather than with a body that might be more swayable by the politics of the day, as it were. The question that I have for you was what you see as the major difference between the regulator and the government. Is it indeed better to have it have those powers sit with a, an independent regulator or with a, an elected body that is ultimately accountable on a regular basis to the population of this country? Yeah, you know, within the sort of digital rights community, this is a, certainly a point of contention, I'd say, and we, and within Parliament too, it's a point of contention. Yeah, you know, I think that accountability is key, and yes, um, politicians and parliamentarians are accountable to the public. Um, there are also, uh, you know, there's also plenty of issues that aren't, we don't see movement on because of the politics that means that, you know, sensible climate action, despite being overwhelmingly supported by, you know, four out of five Australians is, does not see the light of day. And that's because the politics gets in the way of that. And so it's not necessarily about having less faith in parliamentarians, but it's more about the kind of accountability, which sits with regulators, which is different in nature. Um, it comes through, you know, checks and balances around their powers and the use of their powers, and also the appropriate level of transparency. Um, that that means that uh, usually when there's big, you know, um, regulatory breaches, then it'll go through the courts, and there's more conversation and transparency through that process. In a, you know, through the um, through the judiciary, um, and so there's all other forms of accountability that can that can happen there. Um, and I think that uh, I don't see regulators as just an arm of government, and I don't necessarily see them as uh, susceptible to the same kind of influence as parliamentarians. However, regulatory capture happens from both sides. It can happen from industry, and it can happen from government as well. And uh, that is, you know, a systemic problem across all regulatory spaces. Uh, that uh, is, you know, plays out differently. Um, depending on the regulator, the remit, the issue that's trying to be addressed, um, but also you know the the people who work at at the regulators themselves. Um, we, you know, we spend a lot of time with with those those folk, and generally they're all incredibly smart, incredibly well uh, versed in these issues, and are doing good work. And there's different levels of political power. So, an example is Rod Sims. The outgoing ACCC chair is has been incredible. I think in that role, um, he has leveraged that position to really push for I think what is broadly accepted as um, appropriate levels of regulation in ways that have you know balanced community needs and industry needs, um, and and you know the 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 need for a kind of healthy market as well. Um, and you know he's he's also pushed boundaries. He's he's sort of not stepped beyond his remit, but identified where things fall out of his remit that need to get addressed, and that helps to further those conversations. Like that for me is you know the the sort of regulator that we want to see more of. Um, 
but that yeah, but that re- requires you know investment and the positioning of the right individuals into regulators by government. Chris, can we talk a little bit about another hub that you focus on, which is foreign intervention interference in our democracy? Clearly, that is very topical now, globally, given the current context of understanding. You know, this is as a um, an act of cold war. I'm wondering whether or not you could talk a little bit about your approaches and your thinking in that regard. And so, and if you could explain it a little bit more, I think we understand the concept of mil- malicious actors and weaponizing social media and advertising platforms to spread lies and disinformation to create polarization. What are the risks? And what is your approach and the conversations that you're having in this domain? The problem for us around this is, that, as you mentioned, Grisivi, the weaponization of social media platforms. Um, and that that tends to, it plays out in, in different ways. There's often it's, um, you know, foreign governments or foreign actors, but also domestic as well, who um, can, can conduct astroturfing operations, as we call them, where they create communities that appear to be, um, you know, community led and grassroots, but actually, are backed, you know, facilitated and coordinated by, um, you know, corporates or, or foreign governments. Um, and that's, you know, that's a real problem. Um, and then the, the, the real weaponization beyond that is the use of the access to data insights on these platforms and the way that, you know, it enables anyone with a credit card essentially to have a deep understanding of the values, the vices, the interests of Australians and to craft content narratives and, um, and stories that can influence, um, segments of the population to, uh, to believe a certain thing, which might be against their interests or against national interests, um, or to push them towards extreme behaviors. Um, and so we've seen, yeah, you know, the Cambridge Analytica case is the one that is in most people's minds when we talk about this, and um, you know those those practices haven't haven't stopped. Um, they've just gotten more sophisticated. I mean, Cambridge Analytica might be de- might be dead and buried, but um, you know we know that different governments use these tactics. We know that corporates use these tactics, um, and we know that um, you know advocacy organisations use it use them as well, um, and so. The problem is is complex because we don't think we've had a proper conversation around uh, as a as a as a democracy around how we feel about that level of influence in in our public narratives. Um, but it's also different when it's you know a foreign entity versus a domestic entity. Um, we feel differently about about that. Um, and I would say that because of the opaque design of these platforms and because of the the lack of transparency and accountability. We don't really have a a very sophisticated understanding of the way that these operations happen, um, and so while we've certainly got ideas around the kind of accountability measures that that are needed to to prevent this these sorts of attacks on on Australian democracy, really the first step has to be about more transparency, um, and that's and that's to not only better diagnose the problem but also to actually inform better regulation because. At the moment, um, when it comes to say the integrity of the upcoming election, who's who's watching, who's monitoring um, the kind of content that's being pushed, the kind of ads that are being bought and um, and delivered to Australians, 
uh, outside of Facebook because they're the only ones who have full access to that. And at the moment, in, in my view, the, the integrity of the election and the health of the digital information ecosystem in which we are supposed to decide who we vote for is, um, is kind of left up to us hoping that Facebook does the right thing, even though we know repeatedly that they have uh, known about the issues and chosen to still do the wrong thing. Um, but that also it's essentially organizations like ours and a handful of researchers around the country who are doing different levels of monitoring with whatever access we can get through you know, new, new tools and methodologies um, to run that kind of monitoring and analysis and then report on it. I mean, and that's like, that, that's just crazy that we would be relying on a small number of researchers and civil society to ensure the integrity of, of election. So transparency measures which provide more access for those researchers um, and for the appropriate regulator to be able to run at, you know, basic things like an algorithmic audit to understand what are your algorithms actually prioritizing? Because we know that they they prioritize the more sensational, outrageous, and conspiratorial content because it's more engaging. And are we okay with that in the context of election? Um, and um, and so having you know independent researchers and regulators who can who can have a look at algorithms, both both what they're prioritizing, but as well as their outputs is a bit of a no-brainer. It, it doesn't mean, you know, giving up the secret source of or the business secrets of, of big companies. It just means transparency and accountability around the decisions that they're, that they're making that influence voting behavior. I always do think that it's the tip of the iceberg, actually, because what you're describing is just one part of a much bigger problem that starts to look at our resilience, our digital resilience and our our infrastructure, our critical infrastructure across our entire society and economy. And in fact, all of those actors across academia and, and uh, security and business working together to actually plan out what that could look like because you're talking about an application, perhaps, whereas really we should be thinking about this, I think, more deeply as, as, a, as an infrastructure conversation as well. Absolutely. I think that it's important to not put the sole responsibility and blame onto social media companies or big tech companies for these problems. They are, they are problems that I think they have amplified and made endemic from existing problems often, which is there was already, you know, a certain level of polarization and fragmentation that happened, but it's certainly much worse because of these platforms. And, you know, Facebook didn't create hate speech and racism in Australia, but they certainly enable it um, in really dangerous ways. Uh, and so, um, you know, through our lens of digital threats to democracy, uh, you know, we by necessity have to also think about the role of you know, infrastructure, the role of traditional media, the role of truth and politics and, and all of those factors which contribute to this. Um, and I think also that view that regulation by democracies is the solution to these harms caused by big tech. However, we also need to be thinking about media and digital literacy and the way that people choose to and do use um, digital platforms because you can sort of regulate all you want, but unless you're equipping people with the ability to be more um, savvy when it comes to understanding you know, whether something's disinformation or fake news, but also that sort of critical thinking component that is baked into media literacy, which is you know usually around you should understand who's written this article, 
what publication um, has 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 published it, uh, who owns that publication, and what are the kind of ideological uh, tendencies around the, you know those people. Like that's the sort of critical thinking that's baked into a lot of media literacy. And for the digital space, that applies to why am I being served this piece of content? What concerns me, at least, about the, the discussion about misinformation and disinformation is that if you're going to have a regulator that has anything to do with the regulation of misinformation and disinformation, then somebody has to, at some point to be responsible for defining what that is. And I see that as a, a, a task that is beyond most human beings. It's, it seems like often we hear that through social media, through big tech, um, even through the mainstream media, that we need to somehow stop people being exposed to content that we find problematic. And I think that is firstly, I think to your earlier point, Chris, a fool's errand, a Sisyphean task, something that you'll never, ever be able to achieve to everybody's satisfaction. And secondly, it is quite demeaning to the human beings on the receiving end of that content to say that they shouldn't be permitted to make their own evaluation of that content and, and be responsible for making sense of it for themselves. Uh, so your comment about the need for um, for developing media and digital literacy amongst people, I think is is really important. I want to know how you, like what, what sort of thinking you guys have done about how we can better bake that thinking and, and those kinds of attitudes. Do we you know, need to talk about the role of education and the education system in supporting our, our vision for the future of a better interaction between people and technology? There's certainly a need for more inclusion of this sort of conversation in you know, education and our curriculum, and also you know, a nuanced approach to different audience segments. So we know that Older Australians tend to be the largest proliferators and sharers of misinformation. Make of that what you will. We're not ageist on this podcast. <laughs> Don't make fun of old people. I mean, yeah, I've seen my I've seen my my dad's uh, Facebook group comments. So you know, it's, it, <laughs> I'm drawing I'm drawing like there is actual research and data that shows that that's the case. It's not just me uh, throwing down under the bus. Um, he's he's all right. It's his it's his mates I'm concerned with. Um, but you know th- that that audience certainly requires a different approach um, to say young people and through our work with engaging with young people on, on all these issues, you know, it's no surprise that they're just incredibly savvy when it comes to um, technology and, and understanding these issues. But I think something that we've seen through that lens is that even with a really high understanding around some of the, the harms and issues, there tends to be this sort of acceptance of the status quo. And that comes from a lack of understanding around how things could be different and how things could be better and what what do we mean by technology that you know improves well-being and and strengthens democracy like what's the positive vision here um that's not just about dealing with harms and i think uh so yeah so i think that you know that approach is needed across both of those you know like uh, across different audience segments acknowledging that everyone uses these platforms in different ways um but that also i think that that also shouldn't just be left up to you know government and educators is also a responsibility of platforms themselves um, to better inform their users around the you know the implications of them consenting to, to data or you know the the harms of the, the platforms and I think we're starting to see that I think we see more and more startups who are, are thinking about this and I think that'll be a really a real competitive edge um, uh, increasingly going forward where I think as a user I certainly appreciate when. Uh, an app takes the time to explain things in a little bit uh, more nuanced ways or, you know, has built-in suggestions around 
uh, thinking about, you know, how much screen time, screen time I'm spending each week and, and giving me more information to be better informed around, um, around my own digital literacy, um, and, and use of these platforms. So, um, I, I think that, I, you know, there is a role for, for government, um, and communities in this, but I also, I'm always very cautious to say that we're, you know, we're benefited by these technologies, but it's the companies themselves who make insane profits off this work. And that should come from with a responsibility to the public and, and, and the need to inform people better about the good sides and the bad sides of their products. So a future of responsible tech with new emerging companies and startups focused on that and potentially a change in the business model of big tech. Yeah, I think you need to do both. I think there's no simple bullet here. I think it's you need you need approaches at, at each at the community level within industry and within government and and regulation, and that needs to be thought of strategically, influenced by the right people, consulted by the right people. I think there's always a problem with the lack of consultation with uh, impacted communities through these processes, and, and you know, often often the new legislation has these incredibly short review times where you're able to write a submission, um, but maybe you've got three weeks to do it around something that's really complex. And it's left up to those of us who have a deep understanding, um, but not really accessible or capturing the, you know, the perspectives of people who are actually, you know, directly impacted. And so that for me really moves the responsible technology conversation to one that's an ethical, um, technology conversation that includes a little bit more of that engagement with impacted communities and that broader consideration around societal community harms, which I think comes from an ethical approach. And I also think that on a, you know, on a global tech market where we, you know, I think we punch above our weight, um, but a competitive edge that I'd love to see for the Australian tech sector is that we are known for the best ethical, um, ethical tech. Um, I think that's, that's where the demand is is moving slowly, and that would be what I'd love to see. We have a future vision for a, a tech-enabled country and society that includes everyone in that vision and work. Thank you very much, Chris. Fascinating and important work that you do. We'll stay connected and hear about some of the progress over time. We'd love to hear how things are progressing in the policy landscape through the next six to 12 months. And thank you for your time. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. This is Christy. And this is Adam on The Foil Podcast. Check us out on www.thefoil.ai and follow us on all the socials. Share this podcast out to anyone you think might be interested in what we, our guests, have to say. Let them know what we've got coming up. See you next time.